including Greg. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know how y'all are here right now. I really am amazed by that. Two nights, and did y'all sleep at all? I want to know the truth. Any sleep? I slept. Greg says he slept all right, but you guys just drove, I mean, y'all just got back, right? Pretty much. I, I mean, got like, back right before 12. So okay, I had just before 12. And, yeah. When did y'all get back? 12-ish? Okay, that's not bad. That's pretty early, actually. Well, thank y'all for being here today, and we have this Sunday and next Sunday are our last two weeks on the issue of, well, really, of the cultural series in general, but especially on the issue of critical theory and uh, wokeness and critical race theory and all those different things. Um, Greg, can you pray for us? Uh, and then uh, we've got, as usual, there's plenty to cover, and we'll jump in as quick as we can. Yeah, well, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for another opportunity to gather together as a church family. And Lord, take your word as our standard of truth and apply it to the issues of our day. And Lord, we pray as we've been praying that you'll continue to give us wisdom, uh, clear thinking, sober minds. God, that we would not be held captive by the thoughts and the philosophies and the, the ideologies of this world that would seek to lead us astray and take us away from Christ. Uh, Lord, give us discerning minds. Um, Lord, help us to be able to filter what we hear and filter it well. Lord, so that we know what is true from what is false, what is good from what is evil, what is right from what is wrong. Um, and Lord, we pray as we talk about um, the social justice and the critical race theory and the influence of that upon the church. Lord, help us not have any sort of triumphalistic spirit. Lord, I, I am so confident that what we're sharing is true, but help us not look down upon those we disagree with. Lord, help us to grieve for where they are in error. Help us to, to be earnest to actually pray for them to come back to the truth in places where they need to. Um, and Lord, I pray that because of our time today and next week that we would still continue to be better equipped to talk about these things and engage these issues uh, with those around us. Uh, and we pray in all of it that we would magnify our Savior and bring glory to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just for, for those who have been able to catch really bits and pieces of this series, maybe you've been able to be here some weeks and not other weeks, just going to keep re reemphasizing our main point which is that real racism as defined by Scripture is an egregious and evil and terrible thing. Uh, unrepentant racism, biblically defined, leads to hell, just like any unrepentant sin. So we are in no way minimizing the seriousness of the sin of racism. That would be biblically defined, showing preference and really esteeming someone higher because of their skin color and, and treating someone as less than because of their skin color. That would be racism, partiality. Uh, you can do that with rich and poor. You can do that with ethnicity. You can do that with all kinds of different things. But we condemn that full stop, no question about it. That is evil, and it is, it is against, a sin against the image of God in all human beings that bear God's image. What we are trying to get to over and over in this series is to say that today in our culture, there is something called, by a lot of names, critical race theory, wokeness, uh, intersectional thinking, identity politics. And what's happening is things that are not actually racist truly, are being called racism. And the reason why that's such a big deal is not because some people believe that, but because our institutions are pumping this belief out into the education system. It's being pumped out in our colleges. It's being pushed, like we looked last week, Disney 
targeting children. Remember in the, in the Proud Family clip we showed last week, Made for Young Children, it is just pumping out this way of viewing history. It's revisionist history in many forms. It, it is wrongly diagnosing the problem, wrongly give, uh, giving a false solution to the problem. And uh, we've looked at examples not just of it in our society, which is troubling enough, but we've been looking, and we're going to be looking today, especially today and last week, at examples of this coming out in the church. And I'm not just talking about fringe aspects of the church. You can always find people online who are saying crazy things. I'm talking, these are people that I have formerly had a very high respect for, and as time goes on, I'm increasingly skeptical of some of their beliefs, but these are people who I would have recommended, many of these people, 10 years ago, and now there are major questions about what exactly it is that they uh, propose. Any other introductory thoughts on our last couple of weeks here? Yeah, going back to something we've mentioned, uh, we, I don't think we mentioned it as much last week, uh, but we stressed this several times, is the importance of having the right definitions. Like just because someone uses the same word you use doesn't mean that they mean the same thing by it that you mean by it. And so when it comes to a lot of these issues, we have to press for what do you mean by that when you say it? Racism or, you know, whatever. What do you mean by that? Because what's happened is, and we talked about this, um, we've got the same in a lot, in the church especially, the same words like justice, righteousness, even equity, uh, stuff like that, but it's the, the definitions have changed because of the influence of these critical race theory and stuff like that. And so we have to be sure that when we're talking about these things, we're using not just the biblical word, but the biblical definition of the word. And that we can know, and we've laid that out many times before. Um, so if, if you want to you know, get all those definitions and how we worked with that, I encourage you to go back and um, listen to those. But we have to know what the Bible means by what it says. And this matters is because so many Christians, I think, have been unintentionally misled because, well, hey, they're using biblical words. They're quoting biblical passages. You know, they must be right. And it's like, no, like evaluate the meaning of what they're saying and don't just accept it wholesale. Think through it. And if it doesn't line up with how the Bible uses things, you are not bound to, to use it yourself. You're not bound to believe it. You're not bound in any way to it. You can clearly, firmly reject it. And we have to do that. So Tim Keller is a person who I've had great admiration for. I, let me just speak positively here about Keller. If you're not as familiar with him, most of you probably know his name. My wife was converted in part by reading Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, in college. I went through a period in my life where he was probably my favorite preacher. In the fall of 2007, I remember vividly, I got on a Tim Keller thing, and I, I mean, there were days I listened to six of his sermons in one day. I can remember this vividly. In October of 2007, I was just, I could not, I listened to hundreds of Tim Keller sermons over the course of the years. I've read many, many of his books. I've taught through his books at school. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with Tim Keller, and I've benefited a lot from Tim Keller. As the years have gone on, on this issue, I am increasingly uncomfortable with the things that he is saying. And we, we could give a, a number of examples. I want to give you, and I could spend more time than I need to on these four or five minutes of this, of this Q&A uh, with Brian Stevenson. This woman here is a, uh, was, at least at the time, was a member of his church, I think still is, and, 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 and works there and, and helps there. But uh, I'm just going to begin with this clip. And there are several problematic things that I think Tim Keller says that are part of a larger system of thought that, that he uh, believes. 
Let me ask you a question, Tim, directly about Redeemer specifically. Um, Brian has talked a lot about tonight about the systemic issues in our justice system and how they disproportionately affect black and brown people. Yes. Now, I'm, I'm going to keep pausing here. Um, it is certainly true that there, there, are, there are disparities between uh, white Americans and black Americans in the prison system. And this is no easy thing to untangle and to understand. It's very complex. But here's the assumption that we gotta, we've got to resist. Disparity does not automatically equal discrimination. It may. It, something may be due to discrimination. But the question is, does, does a disparity automatically equal racism or discrimination? Because if it does, then let's just talk about, I mean, just a quick word about, you can look up the stats in prison. Asian Americans are in prison far less than white Americans. So if we're simply doing different proportions, then that must mean there's some sort of, sort of Asian supremacy in our culture that's keeping white people down and that's leading to a disproportionate number of white people in prison versus Asian Americans. Well, we all know intuitively that can't be the answer, right? Like that's, there's no way that's the real answer. So let's be aware of oversimple reasons for disparities. There are very complex reasons for disparities, and we've talked over the last few weeks why there are disparities in both income and other things, and it's much more complicated than a one-size-fits-all racism or white supremacy answer. So we could say a lot more about that. Let's just keep going for the sake of time. So she's asking about the disparity in the prison system. Yeah, um, if we think about the makeup of Redeemer, it's largely a church of white and Asian people. So just wondering, um, for folks who, who might be in the audience thinking and asking, why should I care about these particular issues around justice? What would you say to them? Well, there, the, the Bible, I, uh, I didn't get there tonight because there was uh, there's too much to say. The Bible believes in corporate sin, corporate responsibility. Uh, in Daniel chapter 9, uh, let me talk about white people for a minute. I'll leave, I'll, leave, I'll leave the Asians aside for a second here. But no, don't, don't get your hopes up. Um, the, uh, uh, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is confessing the sins of his forefathers, repenting for them. Um, he... Um, he doesn't, uh, and you know, the average American says, that's crazy. He, he, he didn't do those things. Uh, he I evidently was maybe born and raised in exile, and he wasn't part of the generation of people who sinned against God and, and led to the exile. He, he confesses the sin. Uh, there are other places in the Bible where uh, a, a family or a tribe is punished for one person's sin, like in Joshua chapter 7. And it's because, actually, I think… Now, let, me, let me stop there before we go any further. Uh, Greg, a word about Daniel 9. We, we went through Daniel 9 a few months ago, but it, it, as we get, Daniel 9 is a chapter where Daniel is repenting, and he's repenting for, he talks about both his own sins, my sins and my people's sins, and he's repenting before God, and it's a wonderful prayer. It's, it's also similar to a prayer in, I think it's in Nehemiah 9. Mm -hmm. Some opening words about what may be uh, going on with Daniel 9 and examples like that. Yeah, well, I also want to say something based on what, what he said. There's an assumption that he made in being general about the book of Daniel. And it's not wrong to make general statements if they're rooted in truth. But we have to be careful sometimes for rhetorical effect. We can actually go beyond the truth. And that's what he just did. I had not caught that before until just now. Mm. Daniel, he said, might have been born in exile. That's Daniel was already a young man in Israel when Israel was taken captive to Babylon. And that might seem like a nitpicky point, but it's actually not because that affects how you interpret Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. If Daniel was completely removed from their sin, then there'd be more merit to what he's saying. 
But Daniel was born in and raised at least to, what, 13, 14 years maybe, um, as a teenager, in Israel. That changes the whole nature of this discussion so that when Daniel um, is confessing uh, the sin of, of his people, this is Daniel 9, chapter four, uh, verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. And so, yes, he is rooting this in the, the ongoing sin pattern of God's people, but his generation is included in that because he was part of the people who were exiled. Now, that's not saying Daniel was engaging in the flagrant sin that a lot of others were. I mean, I don't think he was, like, based on what we know of him. He, him and uh, his three friends, they were probably uh, going against the grain with that, but they were still a part of the generation that was sent into exile. And so they, they went to Babylon with other Israelites who were in sin for their, their rebellion and idolatry. And so, he, yes, he's acknowledging the sin of the past, but he's also acknowledging the sin of the present. He's also acknowledging that, and that has the matter uh, in some way. Yeah, and let me just pull up here. Uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote about this very thing, and if you can read this part here, it's, he's mentioning, you can see Daniel 9 right here at the top of the, of the screen, and Nehemiah and Ezra, they all have similar prayers. The blue part, the Jews were not lumped together because of race, ethnicity, geography, education level, or socioeconomic status. The Israelites had freely entered into a covenant relationship with each other and with their God. This is what makes... America is not Israel, okay? This is a big problem here with the thinking. America is not the new Israel. America is not in a covenant relationship with God as a nation. Israel was, as a nation, in a covenant relationship with God. And when the majority of Israel sinned, the, 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 the nation as a whole bore the consequences. And so there, there's a sense in which they were, in a, they were, not in a sense, they were in a covenant relationship with God and each other. Middle of the paragraph. In all three examples above, the leader, in this case Daniel, entered into corporate confession because one, he was praying for the covenant people as a whole. Number two, the people were as a whole marked by unfaithfulness. The vast majority of Israel were unfaithful. There was a tiny remnant like Daniel and his friends, but the majority were unfaithful. And number three, the leader himself bore some responsibility for the actions of the people, either by having been blind to sin, and Ezra says something along those lines in Ezra 9.3, or by participating directly in sin. And if you look at Daniel 9.20 right here on the screen, Daniel actually says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, uh, the Lord sent the angel. So Daniel is not saying he himself was completely guiltless. He includes his own personal guilt in the sin of the people. So taking this structure and just applying it to American history is faulty hermeneutics. It, it doesn't work that way. That, that's not the way this is supposed to, to work. But let's continue because I think more important things are going to be said here in just a moment. God knows, and actually most of the rest of the world knows what Americans don't, and that is what you are, for good and ill, to a great degree, uh, is the product of your community. So for example, if you are bad, uh, your community does bear some responsibility for that because the community was the kind of place where you could become that. 
Now, let me, let me stop here and try to explain a, a, a distinction. So this, this comes from Kevin, Kevin Young's article, the one I just showed. Is, it's about uh, uh, a, a, a biblical understanding toward a theology of apology, is what it's called. A great article from 2018. Here's what DeYoung gives us an example. This is a very extreme, horrible example, but just think about it. Imagine you have a, a parents who have, say, five children, just picking a number, and let's say that uh, they raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They take them to church. They love them well. They're not perfect, but they really are loving the Lord. Four of the children, by God's grace, become believers and live really godly, upstanding lives. And let's just say one child goes completely off the rails and let's say becomes part of something absolutely unthinkably egregious. He gives the example of, say, a school shooting or something absolutely unthinkable. And that happens. He says, now, if the parents were not perfect, but they were truly godly, training up a child in the way he should go kind of parents, if that was true and this child went off the rails, the, children, the, the parents will feel unimaginable remorse and disgust over what, had, what their child has done. They will feel broken and devastated by what their child has done. They, they, will, they, will, they will no doubt go to the families of the victims and they will speak to them and love them as best they can. And they may even say things like, I'm sorry, in the sense of, I hate what happened to you. But how different is it if you have this? Imagine terrible parents who are abusive and awful. They are truly racist. They are, they are truly wicked to the core. And they, they, as their children are growing up, one of their children becomes more violent and aggressive, starts showing really messed up, psychologically messed up tendencies. They, maybe they see his journals and he's writing hateful things and murderous things in his journals. And the parents not only don't rebuke the child or love the child, discipline the child, the parents instead actually encourage that mindset. And then let's say the child goes off and does the shooting. In that case, the parents actually do bear some real direct responsibility because they were actually in some way helping that terrible thing come to pass. You see, in that case, the parents really do bear some guilt and they really do need to repent. But in the other example, the parents don't need to repent. They may hate what happened and feel remorse, but they don't, they're not guilty of the, of, the, of, the son, of the sin of the child. Does that make sense for a distinction there between the two? So we need to be careful here painting with such a broad brush to say the society in general produced this, therefore everyone in this group owes this to someone else. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on that? No, I'm good on that. Okay, let, let's keep going. Responsibility for that because the community was the kind of place where you could become that. And, of course, now that, and I think I shared this with Brian in the back. Uh, back uh, a friend of mine recently was, uh, who's a pastor was talking to a Norwegian a uh, man who had just moved into his, to his community and went to his church. And at one point, he heard uh, the pastor talking about the fact that uh, uh, we, were, we were all complicit in creating this narrative that uh, uh, black people are dangerous, etc. And so we're complicit in this. Afterwards, the, white, the, the, the Norwegian came up and said, no, 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 that's, I'm Norwegian. <laughs> no, I had nothing to do with it. And... and <laughs> My, uh, and my pastor friend said, uh, studies have shown, have pretty much proven that if you have white skin, it's worth a million dollars over a lifetime. Okay, now th- this is where, again, we're getting into this idea. This is basically white privilege is what he's mm-hmm. describing here. If you have white skin, it's worth a million dollars over a lifetime. Now, <laughs> let, me, let me just show you a, a chart here because I think this chart, you, you need to see stuff like this because you're not going to hear it very often these days. This comes, from, uh, this comes from the U.S. Census Bureau, and let me, let me get it on the screen big enough to where you can see it. Usually today, this is, this is a median household income in the U.S. by ethnic group, and I want you to see here. Normally, the only two stats that are ever mentioned in a news program is, is that African Americans here at $35,000 for average median income, and the only other stat that's usually mentioned is going to be white Americans close to $60,000 per median income. Those are the only two that are mentioned, and then our assumptions drawn from that. 
yes, like white supremacy and white privilege, but what about so-called, I mean, if we're going to use privilege language, what about all the nations above white Americans? Pakistani Americans, Chinese Americans, Malaysian Americans, Japanese Americans, Sri Lankan Americans, Taiwanese, Filipino, and Indian Americans all make more uh, per average median income per year in America than white Americans. In fact, all the nations above white Americans are Asian nations. All of them are. Now, are we... If we're going to apply the rules like we're applying, white skin is worth a million dollars, well then, what is Indian American skin worth? It's worth 40,000 more dollars per year. And are you telling me that that's Asian privilege? Is this sort of Asian supremacy? Is that the reason why there's, dispar there's disparate numbers between white Americans and Asian Americans? Listen, uh, no, and, and I don't say this following thing to make anyone uncomfortable. This is simply true, okay? I've, I've looked into this information, and you probably know this intuitively. I'm speaking now, not of every individual, we're speaking of averages. This is very important. Averages. When you look at averages, this is absolutely true. White American homes are, uh, there, there are more single parents in white American homes and black American homes than in Asian American homes. There are far more intact families amongst Asian Americans than other ethnic groups. Do you think that contributes nothing to these numbers? If you keep going, uh, a friend of mine who works with my brother, who's from China, he grew up in China, he's told his testimony. He talks about the academic standards and the pressure in China to perform at a, at a high academic level, and I, I almost couldn't believe his childhood. He said they were at school almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, we're talking grade school. He said the school starts early in the morning. It doesn't end until 9 p.m. A lot of times it was six days a week. You barely get time off, and if you don't, get, if you don't come out with top scores and get a high-paying job, there's, there's major shame, he said, in that society. Now, you could argue that that's idolizing uh, education, or there's, there, there, every culture has its issues. I, I understand that. But is that going to produce, if you have more intact families, higher educational standards, is that going to tend to produce lower crime, lower incarceration rates, <clears throat> higher income over time? Yes, that does not have anything to do with skin color. You know what it has to do with? A cultural difference. It is cultural differences that, have, that are a primary explanation of the numbers on the screen. So to simply say that white skin gives you X amount of money is, again, the, He's not trying to do this, but that is a social Marxist category, and it's not actually being true, I think, to the, to the facts on the table. Thoughts on, on those kinds of things? Well, no, um, you're good. You're saying it well. I'm not going to add to that. Greg did just get back from two nights yes, in North Carolina <laughs> over the weekend. Uh, I actually slept in my own bed the last two nights. So let, let's continue here for a little longer because I think uh, some more troubling things are said here. Have pretty much proven that if you have white skin, it's worth a million dollars over a lifetime over somebody who doesn't have white skin. And that's because of historical forces that uh, have come about. And at this point, you know, you, you could go at it several ways. One, as I mentioned, if you have that asset of white skin right now, historical asset, then you actually have to say, I, I didn't deserve this. And also, I'm to some degree, I'm the product of. Uh, I'm standing on the shoulders of other people who got that through injustice. Are you hearing this? So if you have white skin, you make this much more money because of your white skin, and therefore that's due to historical forces that are connected to injustice. Therefore, you are, what's the implication? Listen, this is really amazing. Product of, uh, I'm standing on the shoulders of other people who got that through injustice. So uh, the Bible actually says, yes, you do, you do, you are, um, involved in injustice, and even if you didn't actually do it, therefore... Whoa! Okay, this is Tim Keller. This is one of the smartest pastors I know of, one of the most well-read pastors I've ever listened to, and this is majorly incorrect. Listen to this again. This is um, an amazingly wrong thing to say. So, uh, the Bible actually says, yes, you do, you do, you are 
um, involved in injustice. And even if you didn't actually do it, therefore you have a responsibility, not just to say, well, you know, maybe if I get around to it, maybe we could do something about the poor people out there. No, you're, you're part of the problem. Um, a couple of things. Going back to something we mentioned, I think, last week. I think it was last week. He also just, again, removed a person's individuality. It's group not, identity is primary. Yes, group identity defines you, not you, and what you do with what you have. So it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how much you've overcome in your life to get to where you are. It's only because of your white skin that you're able to succeed the way you are. The other thing he just did is he also proved one of the, the, the major tenets of a Marxist way of thinking, um, and it's that the system itself is corrupt. Here's mm-hmm. the problem. There are examples, numerous examples in the black community, obviously with all the, the Asian examples that you gave, of people using this cor- supposedly corrupt system that's biased against, biased in favor of white people, to succeed more than white people do. Um, and here's the problem, and he will not talk about this. At least I don't, I don't know that he has. When you have people who don't line up with what he said, they're ignored. You, there are plenty of African-American, black-skinned folks who have worked hard, overcome numerous disadvantages, so many obstacles, and they are successful. And do you know how they get treated? They're not celebrated for, for what they've done. They're discarded and they're, um, they're, they're maligned. They're ignored. They're, um, they're called, like we saw, was it, um, they're an angloid in, a, in, a, in black skin. They're an Uncle Tom. And this is by people of the same skin color as them. It's a derogatory term um, because they're not supposed to do that according to the narrative. And what it, what it shows is, is simply this, like we've said, systems, especially the system we have here in the U.S., which is far from perfect, but it's, I would put it up against any other economic system in the world, hands down, um, because it truly is a system that enables any individual to succeed. I'm not saying it'll be easy, but any individual, no matter who they are, what their upbringing, what their skin color they can succeed if they put the work in. That's the genius of the American system. And that is why immigrants from all over the world have wanted to come here and continue to want to come here. The people who have a hard time with it are the, the rich elites in other countries who think they're better than us. Um, but that's why there has been go to America. Why? Because it doesn't matter how poor you are. You can do something here no matter who you are. And this narrative that we're hearing completely ignores that. It acts like it doesn't exist, and if, if anybody brings it up, oh, you're just, like, they have ways of getting around it, talking around it, and it's absolutely dishonest. And for, for Keller, let me, I don't want to leave this point. For Keller to say, if you have white skin, he says you're part of the problem, and you're part of injustice, even if you didn't do anything personally wrong. That is more than a little troubling. That, that, that is not the way we are supposed to talk. To say, here's your skin color, and then we're, I'm going to impute guilt to you because of the color of your skin, even if you're not personally responsible. So now I want to keep moving here. Uh, Paul Tripp, and, and I, I sincerely say this, I, 
I'm going to criticize Paul Tripp right here, but I want to say I really do recommend Paul Tripp's books. I'm, I'm not kidding. I, his book on parenting, his book on marriage, what did you expect? His, his books are generally very, very good. I'm, I'm not, I will not look down on you if you read Paul Tripp. I love Paul Tripp. But listen to what he says here, and I'm going to show you some clips from his pastor. The second resource is by my pastor, Eric Mason. It's called Woke Church. Now, I'm aware that woke language has become very controversial, and some of you will react against that just because of the title. It's an extremely helpful book, actually, and you may not agree with everything in the book, but even if you can't find your way to read the whole book, at least read the brilliant forewords. There's two forewords in this book by John Perkins and Legan Duncan. Those together are incredible. I would plead with you, read the whole book. So that, that's a flat endorsement from 2020 of Eric Mason's ministry and his book. And I just want to jump in to remind you, because this is an Eric Mason message that we have not. This is, this is a Paul Tripp's pastor. And I want you to listen to a couple of uh, segment, uh, segments from this message uh, dealing with some of these issues. I'm going to start right here. And uh, this is dealing with uh, the issue of, again, redefining the word racism. Listen to this. So racism is, 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 is different than prejudice, if you will. Prejudice, prejudice, if you will, is, is a bit different because it's biased or preconceived opinion about someone. So prejudice is the ability to have a disposition towards someone, but racism is the ability to enact your power based on your, 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 uh, uh, your, um, your, your prejudice against someone. Anybody can be prejudiced. Only a few people can be racist. And so racism is, is the application of your power to enforce your prejudice on people that you want to enforce it on. That means whites have to stop calling black people racist. Okay. He's buying into the, to the new redefined version of the word racism. That is not true. Historically, racism has always meant ethnic prejudice. It's always meant showing favoritism or putting someone down because of skin color and not because of any other reason. It's the very thing MLK was pushing against when he said famously, judging our children by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. And, and here he's saying, uh, only majority culture can be racist. And now let me, let me finish this clip. It's almost, uh, this part's almost over. You call a black person prejudice, but you can never call a black person racist because the difference between me and you is I can, I can call you whatever crazy racial slur I want. I can not treat you a particular way, but racism's a bit different. It's, the, it's me using my structural capacity in connection to power to, to enforce my prejudice to cut things off from you. Thoughts about the redefining of terms like the word racism? Well, again, we have to say, where do these terms come from? Um, I think, if I'm remembering the person right, it was Kimberly Crenshaw who uh, came up with this term, prejudice plus power is what racism is. And that is a complete and dangerous redefinition of the word because it basically gives a blank check to accuse anyone that you want. If you don't have what you think you should have, well, it's because they were racist towards you. Um, but also, too, it, it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't line up with the use of the word historically. Um, and to, to say that someone is incapable of a sin like racism simply because of the color of their skin is, is one of the most ethnic superior statements you can make. They constantly accuse 
um, you know, white people today, white supremacy, whatever. And it's not like old time white supremacy, KKK, burning crosses. It's not that. It's simply you have more money, therefore you're a white supremacist, and that's the core evil. You can, um, you can have all of that, um, and you can accuse all kinds of things, but you can't be racist. So you can basically prejudge and misjudge and slander someone, but you can't be racist. I mean, if we go with the historical definition and we understand it in light of the Bible's terminology on partiality, anybody can be racist. Anybody can. And we, we shouldn't tolerate racism in the true sense. Regardless of your skin color, we should have no place for it. But they're basically giving a blank check for some people to be racist and get revenge. And I'm going to call it revenge racism. Well, we feel like you've done something to us. And so we're going to get you for it. But you can't tell us we're wrong. It's, it's basically revenge is what, what I hear. So p- picking back up here, um, and he's going to take a shot here at Vody Bauckham in particular. He doesn't name him, but he clearly is referring to Vody Bauckham. You'll see why uh, right here. That's what it's about today. Let me just say this. Let me give you some examples of racial mindsets. I'm going to take my time if y'all don't mind. Number one, it uses scapegoat terminology to deny racism. Stuff like Critical race theory. Oh, that's critical race theory. You don't even know what it is. You just heard that somewhere. And because you're a racist and you don't want to deal with your racism, you want to throw, you want to throw a grenade at the gospel. So just pausing, I mean, clearly he would be referring to something like we're doing right now. He would say that, that uh, we're using terms like critical race theory to try to excuse our own personal racism, and we're, in, in the meantime, we're throwing a grenade at the gospel. Let's keep listening. Marxism. Cultural Marxism, ethnic Gnosticism, they're making up words. Okay, ethnic Gnosticism is a term that was made up by Vody Bauckham, who's a black uh, preacher. He's now living in Africa. One of my, I mean, I love Vody Bauckham, but Vody Bauckham made up the term, ethnic Gnosticism. So he's definitely talking right now about Vody uh, in particular. Uh, let's keep listening. To, to come against the fact that racial injustice exists. Another, another racial, racist mindset is when you say just preach the gospel. Why when I talk about race, you say just to preach the gospel? If somebody marriage in trouble, I don't say Jesus Christ died for your sins. That doesn't, that makes, if somebody's on drugs, unless they're a non-Christian, I don't say Jesus died for your sins. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. But it's so racist. It's racist. Because you would have, when I bring up a sin issue, you, you bring up a whole nother way of dealing with it that you wouldn't even deal with it with any other sin. Okay, now just, just, it's hard, I'm not going to defend what he just said, but I'm trying to let you understand what he's trying to say, I think. I don't agree with it, but what I think he would would say is, if we said that uh, overturning Roe v. Wade is a good thing, and we celebrate that, we don't just say, just preach the gospel, we say, and also overturn unjust laws, right? And I I, I agree with that. We we preach the gospel, and we overturn laws that lead to the death of the unborn. So I think he's saying, well, why aren't you guys saying, uh, let's overturn unjust laws racially? And my question is, what unjust current law are we talking about that is inherently racist today? Jim Crow was an actually racist law, and it was overturned. Praise God. I, I, you say preach the gospel and overturn Jim Crow. I'm okay with saying both of those things at the same time. No contradiction. But what current law on the books is actually racist today? And, and they have to look with a microscope to try to find anything because there is no just like racist law. Well, we can talk about more in a second, but let me, let me, let me uh, get to this other part here before we go any further. This, this part, 5855. Uh, now, I will, I will give him credit. 
This next part I'm about to show you, he did publicly apologize, but he left the sermon on his website. But he did apologize for this next part, but I'm going to show it to you because I want to show you how bad this kind of preaching can actually get. So l- listen to what, and he's talking about people like Vody Bauckham, because he just mentioned that. So listen, he's talking about African-Americans who won't embrace wokeness, and he has some pretty harsh things to say. He well, did apologize. As the color being the foundation. Another, another way is noses exist and ignores it. Quiet about it to keep the flow of money and power going. See, he's talking about African-Americans who won't uh, become woke and call out white supremacy to keep the money coming from white culture is his, is his, is his uh, argument. See, some of y'all, that's really what it's about. It's about, it's, it's about that bag. See, not dealing with racism, for some of y'all, it's really about keeping your bag going because you know some of that old money will run out the door if you start talking about their issues. Don't nobody want to give you a million dollars and get their butt kicked at the same time? Oh, yeah, because I, 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 I'm willing to lose mine because if you lose your life for his sake, you'll gain it. But if you try to gain your life for your own sake, you'll lose it. Speaking out against racism, <coughs> racial injustice to keep the flow of money coming. Some of y'all speak against racial injustice. So, so you can let you know, Master, eyes, eyes, ain't, eyes ain't like the other Negroes. Master, eyes, eyes over his. We's, we's, master feeds us, master clothes us. Y'all, look, look at me think I'm acting funny. Uh, this is the truth because some of y'all Negroes, let me tell y'all something. Some of y'all are some suckers in the spirit because you won't be honest with the racism that you're dealing with and you, wanna, you, wanna, you want the, the spoils of privilege and you'll sell out the gospel and you'll sell out your own people. You'll, help me today, God. He's talking about people like Daryl and Virgil. He's talking about people like Vody. He's talking about uh, people in the Reformed Evangelical community who like coined the term ethnic Gnosticism that he just mentioned, who simply will not embrace the woke worldview. And he's basically saying, you're selling out our people. Now, I, I give him credit. He apologized for that illustration about the master and the slave, but he did not apologize for the sermon. He actually says he wished that people would listen to the whole sermon mm-hmm. and hear what he has to say. Um, yeah, Greg, thoughts on that? Well, one of the things that, that concerns me is the attempt to dismiss any real engagement um, on this issue. If someone is making a big deal about something, but they're not willing to engage it with you and hear a contrary opinion, that is highly suspect. Um, And here's the thing. I've read the seminal work on critical race theory. I'm going to bring the book next week and show it to you, and I marked it up front to back. I've read his book, Woke Church, and I marked it up. I've read numerous articles that folks like him have said, you got to read this. So I read it. You got to read these books. So I read the books. So to tell me that I haven't read this and I'm just using a word because I heard, and I'm not alone in that. Like there's a lot of people who have read all the stuff they say we don't read, but should read. And then once we read it and we still disagree with it, they don't want to talk because they think we should just automatically agree with them and turn our brains off when we read it. And that's not going to happen. Nobody should turn your brain off, no matter who you're reading. We engage critically. We try to be fair. We try to be, you know, as, as even as we can be. We don't want to, you know, imbalance our, our interpretation of something. But we read it, and we, we let, the, let the author speak for himself. And so that charge is simply an attempt to not have to engage people in conversation. It's easier to rant and rail against people than it is to sit down and have a hard discussion. And it would be a hard discussion. 
-hmm. But it's like we like, and this has been one of the most frustrating things about this whole critical race theory influence in the church is folks like Mason and others who buy into it. They stop wanting to actually talk about it. They tell us we need to shut up and listen. Well, if I'm a Christian, I can't do that because I'm bound to the truth. And if I hear something that doesn't line up with the truth, just because I need to listen does not mean I'm going to just accept it as true when it's contrary to fact. We have to keep our brains on. We never turn them off. We do need to listen and let somebody share what they're thinking. But at the end of that, we can acknowledge what they said. We need to be able to, un- we need to, we need to, be able to say it in a way they say, yeah, that's what I believe. And you can say, okay, here's what I can say I agree with. And here's in light of scripture what I say you, you need to think about because it doesn't seem like it's lining up with the Bible. If they're not going to do that, that has already revealed that they're not really interested in the truth that they've already been held captive by a false narrative and they are more allied to that narrative in this issue than they are to Christ. No, that's, that's, that is true. That's sadly true. Uh, can, can y'all turn in your Bible to Ezekiel 18? Seems like a strange place perhaps to go, but I'll, let's turn to Ezekiel 18. <clears throat> Before I read that passage... I want to show you one more uh, troubling statement from a different sermon from Eric Mason from uh, a couple of years ago. Can can I say real quick too, again, just to remind folks, the reason we're we're bringing Mason up is because he, he has been given a platform to talk about this. Oh, yeah. Like, people listen to him. I mean, obviously, Lig Duncan... Um, all Matt that Chandler's in, Matt very Chandler, close friends with Eric Mason. Like he, he has been elevated to talk about these things in such a way that, that those who support him say, you need to listen to him. And so he's being put forward as someone who is authoritative on this, someone who, who is influential, and we need to listen to him. And so we're going to go at and after the positions that are most public and that are held forth to be the most influential. That's why we're doing this is because that's him. He's one of these guys. Right. And I just say it one more time. 10, 12 years ago, his book, Manhood Restored, was widely praised in mm-hmm. the Reformed community. And uh, as far as I can tell, a solid book on manhood. You know, there's, back 12 years ago, uh, this would have been a guy I would have felt comfortable quoting positively. I liked Eric Mason. I would have recommended him 12 years ago. Today, a lot has changed, honestly. So, so listen, this one is also troubling. Uh, this, video, this clip right here, I think, gets at one of the core issues that I have a problem with. Listen carefully for about a minute. Things. As verse nine said, Jesus said, to so he, he, "Sorry, he's talking about Nicodemus." And when Nicod, uh, excuse me, uh, Zacchaeus, when Zacchaeus repented, remember he restored the money that he had stolen uh, four times as much as he stole. That's what he's referring to, and he makes a massive leap here. A salvation has come to his house. You know what I like about this is that Jesus, in verse nine of Luke nineteen, connects Zacchaeus's willingness to pay reparations as a sign that he had been changed by the gospel. Now stop there. I agree, of course. We would all agree. Zacchaeus had personally stolen from many people as a tax collector. He had overcharged and kept money for himself. He becomes a believer. He meets Jesus. Come down from the tree. I'm going to go to your house today. He goes to the lunch with Jesus, and he's radically converted. And the evidence of his new faith is that he wants to restore what he stole. 100% agree. Him restoring what he stole is a sign of his conversion. Now, do you know where the leap's going here for the next step? Can you tell the next leap? Listen to this implication. How many of you watching under the sound of my voice saying that racism doesn't exist? 
I've never said that, first of all. I, I don't know anyone who has said that racism no longer exists. It, it, it is a poison, and it still does exist, and it needs to be repented of, but let's hear his conclusion. How many of you under the sound of my voice talking about uh, I don't, I, it wasn't me, and I don't need to pay reparations, all of this type of stuff? If, if you're under the sound of my voice, and you're resisting restitution for black people because of what's happened into this country, you may want to check your, your, your justification uh, uh, monitor. You may not be a Christian if you don't believe in paying reparations based on our country's history between white and black people. That's what he just said. If you don't, I mean, just one more time. And you're resisting restitution for black people because of what's happened into this country, you may want to check your, your, your justification uh, uh, monitor. I know because some of y'all call me a heretic because I deal with racial injustice. Well, I'm still preaching the gospel. Matter of fact, we hit the block out here. We preach the gospel to see people come to spiritual death and spiritual life. So, there, so, However, we believe that the gospel has outworkings that impact the way we relate to one another, God and one another. And again, we agree. If the gospel comes into my life, it will impact how I treat other people. But it doesn't mean I will embrace critical race theory and reparations. That is not a biblical concept. So let's get to Ezekiel 18. We'll close on this point here. We could read a lot of the chapter. Uh, Greg, could you read verses, uh, could you read verses uh, 5 through 18? Yeah, Ezekiel 18, beginning in verse 5. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right... If he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous." He shall surely live, declares the Lord. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends an interest, and take, takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself." Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live." As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Can you read the next paragraph, 19 and 20? Yeah. Yet you say, why should not the son, and this is a great question, oh my word, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Just a word as we close here, a word of application from this passage about applying it to this whole situation with reparations. Um, I mean, it, it can't be any clearer 
I think, verse 19. Because, because the question is being asked, why shouldn't the son suffer? It's like the father did evil. The son should suffer for what the father did. That's generational corporate responsibility that is what reparations is all based on. We ourselves didn't do the slavery, but because of slavery and what it did to the African-American community, we're still guilty and we should still repay based on that. We should suffer for what our ancestors did. And that is exactly the opposite of what Ezekiel here says. I mean, he, he, he clearly refutes and rejects that argument, it, like almost verbatim. And so the application is, we will suffer for our own sin. We are not to be held liable for the sins of our ancestors. Um, and again, like even if what they did was abominable, we, we agree that it was terrible what's been done to, to black people in this country. It's, it's, it should grieve us. But that does not then translate into we have to pay them back for what we, did not, we ourselves did not do to them. That gets into the Zacchaeus story as well. Zacchaeus paid back those he had wronged in his generation. It is an unwarranted leap from the text to say Zacchaeus paying back what he himself stole to the people he stole it from, that therefore we must pay back what was taken by our ancestors generations ago from the ancestors of people today generations ago. It is simply doing with Scripture what we should not do with Scripture. We are reading our ideas into the text, and then we're going places that the text clearly does not go. And we cannot do that. Yeah, and the, the reason why the gospel itself is the ultimate answer is because that's where sin really gets dealt with. I cannot atone for either my sins or the sins of uh, someone 150 years ago. Uh, Christ alone can be the one who satisfies God's judgment and, and actually makes everything right with God. Can you close us in prayer, Greg? Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you again, Lord, for the opportunity to, to evaluate uh, what's going on in our world in light of your word. And I pray, God, that we would always do that. Um, Lord, I pray that we would be zealous for the truth, zealous for it, Lord, that we would be jealous to uphold your name and your renown and the, the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would not stand for it to be corrupted or misapplied. Um, and Lord, I, again, I pray we'd be on our guard against all kinds of unbiblical thinking and unbiblical uses of the Bible. Lord, we know Satan is the master deceiver. And even as God's people, we have to be so careful to not mishandle the word. Um, we have to be so careful. Lord, help us. Help us to be very careful when we read, very careful when we interpret, very careful when we apply. Lord, we want to stay true to your word. Because if we do that, that's how we stay true to you. Um, and again, Lord, equip us through this. Give us humility. But Lord, give us, a, Lord, an attitude that will not yield, no matter how hard the pressure, that will not yield to unbiblical and therefore ungodly ways of thinking. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.